0: it's it's sort of a unique niche that not everyone can work in, you know, because a lot of a lot of scientists um, like to talk to scientists for good reason, because, you know, the, you know, the audience, you know, the ec- ecosystem, you know, you know, the whole thing. Um, but a lot of them don't have the ability to to step back and translate their often very technical nice. content into just an appealing image for a cover of a magazine. for example.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today, I'm speaking with Vienna-based researcher and illustrator Oliver Hurler about the field of science illustration. He tells me about his path to a scientific career and how he capitalized on the opportunity to make his first science illustrations. Now, science illustration, just like the broader subject of science communication, is about breaking down difficult concepts into easy to understand visual language. If a picture can speak a thousand words, a science illustration is doing the job of replacing some very difficult to understand technical words. We talk about the different ways that research labs and scientists use such illustrations and why it is useful to communicate difficult concepts visually Oliver tells me how he discovered urban sketching, and we discuss how this practice can make us better artists, better observers, and also better people. We talk about where good ideas come from, and the ways that an illustrator can, and must, build a mental library of reference material. Check out Oliver's work on his website, or find him on Instagram using the link in the show notes. During the midway break of this episode, I will be sharing an excerpt from the postscript conversation that I had recently with Thomas Paddlehauser. This bonus conversation, in its entirety, was shared with Sneaky Art Insiders just a few weeks ago. Insiders are the people who choose to support my podcast every month and thus earn a host of amazing privileges, including bonus content, giveaways, and private Discord hangouts. For more information, visit the link in the show notes. But now, let's get to the episode. Oliver and I had some technical connectivity issues, so if things sound a little choppy, it's because we had to reconnect four or five times to complete this conversation. I'm sorry for that, but let's get started. Good evening. And hello, Oliver. Welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today.
0: Hi, hey, Nisha. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on and um, look forward to our little chat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oliver, I've been interested in your work from uh, from a few months now. I heard you speaking on Instagram Live with the Urban Sketchers group. And then I found mm-hmm. out more about the kind of things you do. And I'm so curious about these multiple interests you have and how you have balanced them in your life. So, I think how I want to start this conversation is to understand the source of these inspirations a little better. So, uh, do you think you could tell me how, uh, like, starting at the beginning with your early interests, how what kind of interests were these? Where did art come in? Where did science come in? And how did you, uh, growing up in Austria, how did you pursue these interests towards a career in science and research?
0: Well I mean I wish I could tell you it was all a, it was all a big master plan and I arrived at my at my perfect destination but it really is um, it's a set of coincidences I mean I I had if it was according to my plan well let's put it this way when I was when I was a kid <laughs> I had I had this ambition to be either a pirate a scientist or, or a painter ideally all three of them <laughs> And i think the pirate thing was mainly inspired not by doing evil but more by like travel and um adventure and things like that so i i was into art when i was a kid i liked that i liked it a lot um but i feel like um it wasn't particularly encouraged perhaps that's the that's the way to look at it and so since i had other interests as well it it took a backseat from from the age of i don't know when i when i became a teenager or something like that you know usually when it takes a backseat for most people when mm-hmm. ambition and reality don't n- match up <laughs> yeah <laughs> anymore and you know you want to draw superheroes but they look a little not quite as as hoped <laughs> and so then you know i had other interests as well and so i moved more and more towards science and um Since I can really fall into passions, I feel, I mean, I stuck with that for quite a while. I I went to to university in Vienna and studied genetics um, and then continued an academic um, scientific path to become an, you know, um, an academic at a university, a professor Mm -hmm. of some kind. So I... I went to Cambridge in the UK to do a PhD and then went to to San Francisco to UCSF for some postdoctoral training in in various fields. And it was it was in that in that last period when I was at UCSF that I felt that my career path wasn't uh wasn't as opening up as I as I had hoped for, but it was rather narrowing down and I i was looking for something to just balance my thoughts and to just balance keep me in balance again. And so that's when I really found back to to art and drawing um for real. That was about ten or twelve years ago, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Tell tell, tell me so a little from bit then about then it. it
0: sort of from then it you know, as I said, like um being the kind of person that Falls into passions and then gets grabbed by them. I <laughs> I devoted my more and more time with art as well and to sort of figure out how to do things, what I liked, what I didn't like, and sort of mm-hmm. grow and develop myself in that in that area. And um, and then I took I took the chance to to illustrate certain things when people had a need in, in lab. Um, and I realized, you know, over over a few years, that, that perhaps there's a niche for that, for for my way of seeing things, for and and for translating those often complex scientific topics into something that's easier approachable. Because my science science illustration isn't is not really the classical science illustration. I would say it's um, it's more like New Yorker cover for science um, <laughs> rather than. <laughs> rather than speaking molecules that explain how something works really. It's more about getting people interested by the, by luring them into the picture and on a sort of second level, explaining perhaps things or perhaps engaging them to, to dig deeper themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's come to the subject of science illustration in a little bit. Uh, I'm curious to know uh, what kind of work did you do for your PhD? What was that research like? What were you, what were you working on?
0: Oh, um so i worked on um given that i'm a biologist by training i worked on cell motility how cells move um, so cells in your body and other cells as well move around and given that that this is the case the question arises how do they know where to go how do they steer and what machinery within a cell enables all those processes and i was using um social media as they are called um people who don't like them call them perhaps slime molds <laughs> um they are very similar to to cells of our immune system uh, but they are at least back in the days they were easier um tractable and and so you you could engineer them more better and destroy things various things to so figure out how, how things work and so i was using those um, to figure out how they steer and whether they had some sort of internal compass
1: and how does this benefit us to know this thing? How, where does cell mortality uh, make an impact in our, in our world, in our lives, or in health?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, by now, so first of all, I think um, similar to art, I think this may or may not be the right question to ask, depending on who you are. Um, I think it has a value in itself. Knowledge has a value in itself, even though this is now a little harder to argue with um, funding becoming tighter. Um, it it mm-hmm. used to be that that was a main driving force. Now it's all about like, as you say, like wh- what's the benefit and how does it um, how does it benefit us in a in a situation of um, dwindling resources? But um, it does help us because, as I said, many cells in our body move, and so you could imagine that understand. So usually, understanding is the first step to utilizing those processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you could imagine that if you understand how a cell exactly moves, you could perhaps steer it then to attack cancer or things like that. So this could be the the ultimate goal, but usually there's always a step before that, you know, it's hard to engineer or make something, build something if you don't understand the components.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. And I I think it's most fascinating about research is the number of people. So I, I spent time in an academic environment for a few years. Before right. deciding yeah. to become a writer, uh, but what was most fascinating to me was exactly this: that so many people are motivated by this pure drive to understand something, and even if you can't always, and you, it's very difficult to explain that that joy of under, or that curiosity to yeah. people who are not in your field. Is it, do you have Do you have that difficulty in trying to explain to lay people why you're curious about these things?
0: Um, I think it's I think it's more. It's my character trait. Um, I think if you are driven, it depends. It always depends what what you what you think is a worthy reward. Mm-hmm. If you're driven by, and I don't, I'm not saying that one is better or another, but depending if it's by if you're driven by external appraisal or things like that, then it's um, perhaps different than if you're driven by just finding out things or self improvement or things like that. And I think, I mean. It might be the same for artists you know some might be interested in selling a particular thing um or this might be the main driving force. but a lot of us i think are driven by growth and figuring out how, how something works and making it work for for oneself and finding out like how to um how to navigate in through the, in that passion so i think that in that rel- in that respect it's very similar to science and all I'm sure for in other pursuits as well. I think it's my character thing, what you're, uh, what you're driven by.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. Like I-, I love the words you used for this because so uh, I left academic research behind, but the reason why I became an engineer in the first place was that I was very curious to figure out how certain things worked. So I yeah. became a mechanical engineer and then I became curious about how the body works. And so I became a biomechanical engineer. and. Now, when I pursue my art, I am also manifesting this same curiosity, except that now I see myself as an immigrant in a very new world, coming to the US. And now I live in Vancouver. And my yeah. art became a way for me to understand how this world works, and how do people work, and what do they do? And what, how how, how do these cities and towns exist? And why are they the way they are? And that's what I feel like I'm. Ex- I'm still exploring that same question of how things work, except those things are changing a little bit uh, with the passage of my life.
0: Yeah, I, I can I can relate to that a lot. I think your your drives and your characters stay the same, but what they are hinged on and what what they get attached to might change.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, uh, uh, tell me about uh, so coming to the subject of science illustration um was uh, what how did you discover this field uh, can, was it a specific incident that sparked your interest in the subject and can you tell me about some of the first opportunities you took to do this
0: as i said I, i'm not a typical science um, illustrator because my illustrations are not driven by the urge to explain something i always feel a lot of that i mean everyone there's a huge need for that and um it's a very worthy endeavor but i always feel like it it's a little bit hitting people over the head and I, i i my ambition has always been different i wanted to use i wanted to use my sense of humor and my artistic inclination and see how it can fit into that because this is sort of the world that i'm coming from and and um i have those connections and it's sort of it's it's sort of a unique niche that not everyone can work in, you know, because a lot of a lot of scientists um, like to talk to scientists for good reason because you know the you know the audience you know the ec- ecosystem you know you know the whole thing, um, but a lot of them don't have the ability to to step back and translate their often very technical content into just an appealing image for a cover of a magazine, for example. Where it's where it's not really about um, explaining something, although I do strive to explain as much as possible, but on a sort of second layer. Mm-hmm. I strive for making the first layer sort of just an image that everyone can appreciate no matter what you know and what you where you're coming from. And then if you bring more knowledge to the to the image, then you might pick up on certain details that um you know that make you smile it's like like easter eggs perhaps you know (laughs) that that are that speak directly to the story that it illustrates and the more you know the more you discover in that but it's not necessary and so it's it's a nice image just by itself and it more layers to that and i'll do that for for covers of magazines or for websites of academic labs um where it can benefit them and it makes them it makes them very memorable so those sort of images because a lot of Classic science illustration is usually in in biology or in molecular biology. It's a lot of um, shiny molecules, you know, very beautiful molecular structures that are that are three D animated, perhaps or three D models, um, nicely lit, that they reflect all over the place. But for me, it's all about um, as all of the also not urban sketching and all of my other art. And there was a little bit about the storytelling aspect, and so I'm like I like find an analogous situations that I can that I can use to explain what's going on in that world of biology in that particular article for example and if it can be a little if it can be with a little smirk even better
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely that's so well put Um, I'm thinking of when I was in university there was such a growing interest in the field of science communication and what we would do is every month uh, every lab would give a presentation so different uh, researchers would give presentations of their work to people who had nothing to do with their research with the idea that this way you learn to communicate with people about the things you care about and see it from their outside perspective and i think a part of it was also tied to how uh, with uh, like we were just talking about uh, dwindling funding and how important it becomes for artists for scientists to it might be a little unfair but to communicate why your your work matters
0: uh, it's on the one hand, the explaining other people what you're doing and why this is um, important. Um, this is a very educational purpose. And on the other hand, it's also within a dwindling funding environment. Um, it's also to stick out within science as someone who, you know, if you give a talk and you have a presentation, there's 100 presentations and you have one striking first image, then you'll be the guy with that image. No matter what you're talking about. And so you will be you'll be sticking in people's heads. So that's it's also a little bit of a branding and a marketing tool for some people.
1: Yeah, yeah, very true. And the way you described your art itself, the illustrations you make, you mentioned having two layers, and that immediately also separates your audience into two layers. And I find that so interesting because the first layer is, of course, the immediate appreciation that somebody has for. Uh, We could call it the beauty of the image. We could call it just the art, art quality, the quality of the art that you've made. And that appeals to a very broad audience. Even people who have perhaps nothing to do with science at all can relate to a very clever drawing of a frog pointing at a screen. Or of uh, uh, like some of the other creatures that you've used in interesting ways in your work. And then that second layer of appreciation is for the people who are better versed in maybe not even uh, completely versed in that specific field, but simply have scientific understanding to see the different elements and the components within this piece. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about some of the early works that you did as a science illustrator? Maybe the first couple of jobs that you took on, and uh, how how did you uh, how did you develop this thinking of how you would represent it?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. How did I develop the thinking of how to represent it? Um, well, actually, so it. it... All the things sort of came together, I feel. So it's a little hard to to construe a narrative, but um, all the things came together. On the one hand, I was in science and looking for something else to balance, my, balance myself. I was a little bit um, not quite sure where it would all lead me. Um, I discovered drawing. I got into urban sketching and I started doing... I was wondering what I could illustrate for for scientists a little bit so those are very different areas um, um, so you know the urban sketching where it's more sort of a draw from life and then the illustration where you where you make things up i mean they, they they go together but they are still sort of different beasts and i had to wrangle them to to figure out a little bit how how, how it how that could work for me um, and still an ongoing process that that's the thing i guess it's always an ongoing process. Um, I think the ideas. I. I. I was aware that I wanted to communicate with good ideas, and that this was something that I wanted to be proud of. And um, the the ability, the artistic ability to pull those off, grows with time. And I'm still. there's still things that I feel like that I shy away from sometimes because I feel like I can't pull it off to the extent that I would like to, but um the ideas well i mean there's a few few things that i can rec- that i know that that work and first of all the the first thing is to not use your first idea so this is, the, <laughs> this is the because usually the first ideas are the most obvious ones and those are the ideas that everyone has um and so they get abused until you know till the end of time so you can't really do something great with those anymore and then um i knew that that analogies would be a thing that i that i that i like to work with um you know double meanings and and, and transposing things into different worlds to explain the same thing like in like in fairy well not fairy tales but what are they called in english fables is it fables
2: yeah.
0: yeah you know where you use different characters to express something about the king or something like that um so i knew that that was something that i wanted to do and it's still but it's still I still think that this is actually the hardest, the hardest part to get to a good idea, um, especially on a deadline, because you want to get into it and you want to, you know, you want to have something on paper to show someone, um, and you want, you want. The temptation is high to rush through that <laughs> and just be happy with any idea because, uh, okay, they will be fine. It's going to work out. Um, so when when the clock is ticking and you know. You have to have something by the end of the week for example and you spend a day or two just thinking about what the right idea is then um adrenaline can rise
1: (laughs) (laughs) sometimes that's the only way to get things finished right having a a deadline on your head
0: uh yes i think um i think deadlines are great for for finishing but i don't think they are particularly useful for starting so for the idea Mm -hmm. stage you know you want to kick back and think about things if you're too close on a deadline, then the temptation is very high to go with the first idea, which is usually not the, not the best, in my case, at least.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I, I completely understand that. And I'm thinking about how, so when you're working on a deadline, you can only immediately summon up a bunch of ideas. And of course, the first layer of ideas are exactly, as you said, the ones that occur to everybody else also. So you have to discard those ones. But So this idea generation and the source it comes from. So sometimes I think of uh, I describe my, so I'm a self-taught artist and I describe the way that I'm learning as building up a a vocabulary of shapes and lines. So I pick up things from all kinds of different sources and I file them into my brain. I build a library and then when I need to execute, I pull from that library. I uh, draw books and ideas and little scraps of things that I've picked up from my world. So yeah. si- similarly, as an illustrator, uh, these ideas you have to you have to constantly feed this system to constantly have a vast uh, vast field from which you can pick out things. Um, so I'm I'm wondering where do these analogies and you mentioned fables and fairy tales, where do they come from for you? What are what is the source that you go to to have good ideas in general?
0: Yeah, that's the mystery, isn't it? And I I wish uh, I wish I knew <laughs> because then I could just feed myself with those things and knew I was I'm ready to. Ready to spit them out when time comes, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I think it's in my case, it's random. I mean, I think you need to engage with the world somehow and consume Mm -hmm. things as well, like consume culture, because I realized that that digested versions find their way back just even if it's just a starting idea um you know i might have an idea about um i don't know current thing is i might have an idea someone might mention antlers we it could be a little bit like antlers um then i'm thinking okay antlers and i remember a picture for example of of someone with someone who drew antlers or someone who drew something else that relates to antlers so the idea is to you need some sort of you're not you know you're not existing in a vacuum but you also don't just want to recall things that other people have done and, and spit them back out on the page, but sort of digest all these things that you know of and you don't even know what you know of until that idea comes. So it's hard to prepare for the idea because you don't know what mm-hmm. what, this, what that um, store, what store it comes from. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's also in my case. It comes from two. From I realize that it comes from two very different worlds. One is the world world of words. Where I think about where I think about certain phrases that are in the text, for example, or certain words, and think about what else they could mean, and in what other context they might be used, and what could be construed out of that. And the other the other world that feeds into my illustration work is directly from images that I perhaps even that I draw. So I I might start with a word and, and, and it, it might grow into something else. And then by drawing that initial idea, something might suggest itself that I wasn't aware before just from seeing that what I've put on the paper, that there is some opportunity of juxtaposition or adding this thing or turning it into something completely else that I wouldn't be able to verbalize before seeing something on the page as a starting point if that makes any sense
1: yeah actually it does uh i was reminded of this recently i read something about the works of this uh french uh, philosopher called derrida yeah and he uh, talks he talked about the synchronicity and diachronicity of words so he was also sort of like a linguist like he would uh, pick apart language yeah. And so synchronic mean uh, words have two so, kinds of meanings, according to him. The synchronic meaning is the meaning that it has today in your mind right now, how you think of a word. So whether it's knowledge, whether it's freedom, whether it's a concept word like liberty or equality and or mercy or justice. And then the word also has a diachronic meaning. And the diachronic meaning is the summation of all the meanings it has held over time. So mm-hmm. instead of regarding mm-hmm. just today's idea of what is liberty, but what has liberty meant over the decades and centuries and millennia of human existence? And so when we talk to each other, he, he brings up this point that when we talk to each other, everybody has their own meaning of every word. So we are always talking at cross purposes in a sense that the word that I'm using does not mean the same thing as the word that you are listening to. And so yeah. it's it's interesting to pick apart language in this way.
0: And on that note, if you think about it, like let's say liberty or something like that, let's say for some reason you jump to the conclusion that liberty is um, for you, is expressed in a flag, right? The flag of some country. Then once you draw that flag down, suddenly new opportunities arise. You could have a character under the flag, you know, um, covered by the, by the flag, or someone could step on the flag and complete the... the the context changes and the meaning changes so that's what i mean by things sometimes only arise when you put something down because new opportunities arise by them drawing with what you have
1: yeah 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 so well put and an illustration has this unique uh, property that everybody relates to it in their own way and it's so open to interpretation that it can take on these multiple meanings that were perhaps suggested but not maybe the primary uh, objective of the illustrator himself
0: yeah yeah that's 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 definitely that and i mean everyone you know you always bring yourself to any picture that you or any reality that you consume <laughs> um be that uh, illustration or urban sketching that's definitely true for me and for illustration the the interesting part on that, the interesting thing to note on that is perhaps the different sensibilities that you deal with when you put out when you put down an illustration for different people. Because um, you know, sensi sensibilities might be very different if I work for a group of people that are spread all over the globe. Um people might be might be worried about something that I had no idea that one could even worry about that. Um and so sometimes that's annoying um <laughs> but it's just the way it is you know
1: <laughs> yeah i was just thinking about the flag itself uh, as a symbol of liberty but how it might be pers- if you choose a particular flag for example of a particular country how it might be completely different to someone exactly
0: exactly and you know it this would be a very loaded very loaded topic if you if you step on a flag or something like that you usually you wouldn't make too many friends in a lot of countries i guess yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it can even be more subdued things that people are worried about um like um i don't know whether you want me to to talk about an example folks um one thing was for example i had i had a character that was was a little bit inspired by was a group of scientists going through the jungle and throughout all the version one of the scientists a female scientist um, had a tank top was wearing a tank top um and then so i work um sometimes traditional sometimes digital and this was a version that we were working traditionally on with watercolors and uh, stuff like that and in the very in the very end it was decided that uh, cannot be a tank top because that would be too revealing for example you know and something that hasn't come up before and so someone um was worried about that so that then we needed to go out of our ways to, to change that, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about now, again, thinking about the different places we pick up ideas from. Uh, I want to come to urban sketching. How, how did urban sketching enter your life? How did you discover it? And how did you begin to uh, begin to do this kind of thing?
0: Hmm, let's think. How did it enter my life? I think one of the... So I remember one of the first books that I that I read when I was looking for something to balance my life was one of Danny Gregory's books. Um, I think like many people who are trying to get back into the into a creative habit and, and perhaps haven't allowed themselves or have, have lost that um, for a while. Um, this was the, this was the time when he was really there to pick to serve that need. I feel and he, he still is. Um, urban sketching itself, I knew that I was. So I, I knew that I was interested in that sort of storytelling somehow, one way or another. Um, and I was really interested in drawing people because of that, because I feel every story can be expressed by people interacting or doing things. Um, and so I must have, I'm sure I stumbled across urban sketches as, as well, but I was more on the sidelines um, watching things. I i think i i wasn't you know i wasn't the i wasn't the happiest person initially because i was sort of in this in-between thing being a scientist and looking for something to divert my mind that i wasn't really outgoing and and and, um, look at me i'm going out sketching with all with everyone and doing it. it was sort of a private endeavor for me initially um and i only really the first time when i got really connected to urban sketches was because i was I was having a, a small blog. I was starting a small blog then as well. Mm-hmm. It was called um, Visual Flammeur um, when I was you know, going through the streets and recording recording what I was seeing. Um, also in a bit of a sneaky way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> as I think most people do, you know, it's not the you have to have a big ego to stand in the middle of a crowd and to proclaim yourself an artist and draw. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know too many people who who pull this off gracefully. Um, so I had that blog, and then, some, then in San Francisco, where we were, where I was living at the time, they started a series of ten by ten workshops—ten workshops by ten people—in one summer. And one of the organizers had seen my blog or something, and I was approached where I wanted to teach a workshop out of out of nowhere. I hadn't really had contact with them before, and. And I was—I didn't even think that it was an oppo- that this was um, possible. But I—I I, I jumped onto that opportunity because it's a new teaching from science. So I knew how to, um, how to break down complex things into digestible bits and uh, not assume too much from people. And so I jumped on, onto that opportunity, and this was sort of my my gateway into into the real urban sketching, I guess, you know, with, with the community of people. Um, So quite, quite unusual again, I guess.
1: (laughs) Oh, but I, but I completely understand. Uh, I, I was in this place, I was in Chicago and I needed to also balance my creativity and I needed an outlet and at the same time, I needed to become better at drawing. I had this goal I had set for myself because I was drawing these web comics and they were stick figures because I couldn't draw. Yeah. And I, kn- I thought that I really need to learn. And my second motivation was that I thought I found Chicago to be such a beautiful city that I really wanted to explore. And I wanted to tie these things together that if I need to learn and I want to really stare at this city, why don't I draw this city? Yes. So (laughs) that kind of led to uh, finding out that there is such a thing as urban sketching and that this happens.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as I said, I was really... I think I jumped into the deep end by being motivated by drawing people, which is usually a little bit of a frightening topic for most people. And I... San Francisco with the nice weather. We went to the park a lot and I, you know, I was just drawing anyone who was around. I was filling pages and pages of people and eventually deciding, okay, I, this works sort of, but I need to understand more and what I'm taking anatomy classes and things like that to sort of, you know, with the drive to make these things better. And um, yeah, and so it there was people first and then <laughs> environments around, I guess. <laughs> But some people say it's either you, know, you you either draw buildings with people or you draw people with buildings.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and I'm completely in the second category with yeah. you. I always draw people, <laughs> and then I see the the world that they live in. For me, the stars are always the people, and that's what I'm curious about. Having come to this new part of the world that I had never seen, yeah, I was not fascinated by Chicago because of the buildings of Chicago. I was fascinated by the people entering and exiting these buildings and right. doing these crazy things that americans do with so much confidence they just live their <laughs> lives and they don't seem to care about the world around them it was fascinating to me that this can happen that
0: yeah <laughs> there are I mean, so many think,
1: interesting people in this city
0: i mean i can completely relate i think i i could endlessly watch and draw people it's uh i mean i'm an introvert so i'm not i'm not um I'm not the most interested in interacting with people all the time. I can do it and I enjoy it, but then I am sort of run out of energy and I need to recharge, so this illustration gig is good for me and also going out and sketching, that works well for me. But I'm very interested in always in people as a phenomenon, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the things they do and how they interact and and what they wear and um, the human condition and how they sort of... How it plays out in the world? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed i, I share all o- I share all the same fascinations. Um, so it seems to me like urban sketching also began for you as a way to as a way to ex- express this fulfill this curiosity in in the world around you. And another part of it was that you needed to really fulfill creativity in some way. You wanted to express this other side of your
0: life. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely um so i mean i think the first thing was sort of self well therapy is a big word but it's you know you when you draw and you're in it you can't think about anything depressing or anything that doesn't work or anything that's sort of you're in that thing and you do it and it consumes you and you get your head of other things which is which is one thing that it does brilliantly so this was one one aspect and then um, being able to sort of perhaps you know perhaps as an introvert, being able to express something about the world with the drawing appealed to me. Um, and And then sort of with that uh, mindset of or with a character that falls into passions and gets gets stuck onto things, then sort of developing that ability and trying to get better at it was sort of a perhaps a third factor into that in that that makes sense
1: yeah absolutely and i share uh, some of that introversion as well because i go out of my way to not have conversations with people and <laughs> i find that uh, so that's that's why when i record for, for example when i schedule these podcast conversations uh, today's conversation is going to ruin me for the next week. I don't think I'll be able to talk to anyone else again
0: for a week. Well, I'm happy to help.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm also motivated to extract as much value and juice as I can from this from this time that we are talking. Well, so, 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 how
0: does someone who who is introverted and doesn't like to talk to people start a podcast where I talk at length with random strangers?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's such a good question. So. Partly, uh, I don't think this podcast would have happened if not for the pandemic. I think uh, what happened with me was that I've gotten so much from being an urban sketcher. I've learned so much from being around urban sketchers, watching them draw, looking over their shoulder, asking them something. This is what has made me an artist very accidentally. I never thought that I would become an artist. My idea when I left my uh, sci- uh, my academic career was that I'm going to be a writer and Only very accidentally from pursuing curiosity, I have found that I'm suddenly now I'm an artist apparently and people want to buy my art. So okay, let's do it. It's fun and it works. So let's do more. And now I'm an artist. So uh, when the pandemic happened, I found that suddenly this, this tap had been closed, like this tap from which I was getting all my learning. I was getting so much inspiration from being around sketchers. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to switch, I wanted to turn it on again. And there was no other way except maybe I need to get on a call with them. And so I thought, how will I do that? How will I, I can't just get on, I can't just ask Paul to talk to me for one hour on Zoom because, hey, Paul, I want to just hear from you. So I need to find an excuse to talk to people. <laughs> and what better excuse than a podcast? Hey, we're going to share. And uh, I mean, the the idea of sharing this conversation with the world is believe it or not my secondary goal my primary goal is what I'm going to get from talking to you
0: well done you're a truly sneaky artist Uh,
1: yeah in in so the the introversion (laughs) is a direct manifestation of this idea that why am I why am I sneaky because I really I'm so curious about people I'm so interested in them but I really really do not want them to come up to me and ask me what I'm doing and then I'll have to tell them and then we'll go through this cycle of what are, you, what do you do? How do you do it? And tell me more about it. And all of these are good questions. They would flatter me. They would, I would feel nice. But I just don't want to do those questions. And I do my best to be in a part yeah. of my uh, surroundings where I cannot be seen by my subjects or I can't be noticed by too many people around myself. Even now, it's been, what, four years of doing this. And even today, if... I'm sketching somewhere. I get very nervous if I if I feel like someone might see me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got a little bit less self conscious about it. But what what surprises me the most is um, I still I still prefer to have a wall in my back rather than sort of stand in the middle of a place and sketch sketch around and have everyone looking over my shoulder. But and this is the this is a funny or interesting um, was interesting revelation to me. If you teach a workshop or something, suddenly this disappears because now mm. you have this, you know, you're now you're given at least temporarily the status that now it's, Oh, you know, I teach someone. So this is sort of different. This is a different status, um, um, within the general public. So if now someone comes then it's clear it's a workshop and they know whose role is what so to so to speak, and it's sort of less uh, oh shouldn't you be doing something properly or something you know um, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny, and then it disappears again if you're on your own you're sort of little you're the weird the weird one out again
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> that that's so true so i I did this workshop in twenty nineteen in the uh, Chicago seminar and this was right in, and because my workshop was about drawing people because that's my my forte my my first joy of sketching is to draw people in busy cities and busy yeah. locations so we were right yeah. in the heart of downtown chicago with 20 people looking at my drawings and i'm sitting in the middle of them i'm walking among them and telling them what to do so a lot i'm quite noticeable But in that moment, because I'm the teacher, I had this mandate to be there. I have a reason to be there, which I don't feel like I I need to feel odd.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, On the subject of teaching, um, so you obviously, as a researcher associated with the university, you teach students in a formal academic classroom environment. And then you teach uh, students who want to study urban sketching from you. In various outdoor environments, um, how, how do, those, do these two things contrast for you? What are some big differences, and what are some big similarities between the two things?
0: Well, so when I still was in research, I did do some teaching. That's that's right. Um, so I did um, teach various people, like from undergrads to PhD students, various aspects of research or various topics to different extents. Um, so. I think I think to some to be a good teacher you have to have some sort of teacher's mind to it and this is something that not everyone can or want to do um, and there's no I completely can relate to that as well. Teacher's mind to some extent means that you are able to lower not yourself but lower the lower the standard to be able to pick up people where they are. So you know you might be interested in some very elaborate like color temperature things at the moment, but uh, in order of to teach people a good basis, you might start off with, um, you know, simple contour drawing things. And so not everyone's interested in that because they are now doing something else and, and have other things that occupy their mind. So um, so being able to, to bring everyone on board and, and take them along for the ride, I think, is a, is an essential thing. Um, and then breaking it down into manageable chunks. That sounds easier than it is. Um, because you know usually there's a bunch of factors working together to 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 make something happen to make something work and so to really break it down and make it make sure that everyone um can digest it as best as possible is is an important is an important part um the advantage obviously in in sort of urban sketching workshops is also well might be an advantage what i enjoy about it definitely is that it's while it is about learning it is also about having a good time and you know only people who are really i mean people sign up to do your workshop because they like what you they like what you do and also because they want to have a have a good weekend or a good afternoon or or whatever it is so I, i think it's a mixture of those two things it's it's not hardcore learning but it's also not just you know, making fun all the time, but I think it has to be it's a little bit more lighthearted and, um, uh, bringing everyone on board because not everyone wants to does this workshop to become a serious artist, but just so that they, you know, try something new in their practice or that they get some new ideas. And so it, people want to take also are, are prepared to only take away different amounts. So, and it's not a, not a right or wrong thing. Just, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, a a couple of points from that. Firstly, I was thinking of the difference being that in a university, uh, you are often teaching some some percentage of your class against their will. (laughs) Maybe they're not in the right frame of mind to listen to you. Maybe they're not the most enthusiastic in that moment, even if they do want to be in that course, they want to be studying those subjects, they might not be in that moment enthusiastic in the same way as someone who has signed up for a course very distinctly thought about the goals and the time of the course and then joins you for a drawing workshop.
0: I mean, this is sort of what I I was fortunate enough, not having to do too many like long formal courses where people were sort of funneled through and they weren't interested uh, when I was at university. I was mainly occupied with research and teaching people on the job in specific things. Uh, but this is definitely something that would put me off from sort of formal education to to, to deal with funnel people through that are not really um, here to to learn what I have to offer. So this is a this is a good it's, it's a good combination. This um, yeah. yeah, it's a good combination to to. I I I very much like the audience that I get to interact with and that I get to teach. I mean, it's also everyone's, as you said, people are very grateful for that, that they have the opportunity. And um, really from I've had the opportunity so far, I think teach, Yeah. I don't know a few hundred students for sure. Um, and I think I only had two or three students who I wasn't, I wasn't sure why they were there. So, you know, there's still a few who come with this sort of, well, what are you going to tell me? So with this sort of opposition mindset, you know, which I'm a little bit surprised if you sign up for a class at your own time um, to come with that mindset, but it's very rare. It's very rare.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Another thing you said that was very interesting to me was that uh, you were talking about how uh, teaching involves breaking down concepts and breaking down like... uh, like laying out a flowchart of the process. And sometimes that and it sounds from a very outsider perspective, it might sound very simple that you do it. So why not just say what you're doing. But it it becomes very complicated, because a lot of artists, and this is also true for scientists, they don't follow a step by step by step process. A lot of things are intuition, a lot of things are Learned in a certain way, so I think of it as suppose my job as a teacher might be to go take you from step one to step ten, but as an artist, I go from step one to step five, and then I do five to eight, and then I do eight to ten, and that's just the way that I might have imbibed my lessons or developed my process of art.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's interesting that you, that you mention it because I think about that differently um i don't think about it as a sort of step by step Um, i know some people do that and it works very well to do sort of this is how i do things so we'll i'll walk you through the five steps how do i start how do the middle thing and how do i finish off and how do i make it shiny and then we all say yay Um, i think about it more as a sort of toolbox Um, i sort of like to explain what i do to get certain effects, like what do I do with lines so that it looks more three dimensional, for example, what do I do? What strategies do I use with color? So I, I like to think about it as a toolbox so that students then can pick and choose their weapons of choice and apply them as they see fit. Um, That has two advantages. First of all, if they don't like something, or if they're really into something, then then they can take this on or leave it out without like destroying the whole You know the whole experience and usually they also usually people bring themselves already to the process so they have some preconceived way and they have they have you know they have the history of they do things and some some things might be completely at odds and other things might just be a natural extension to that Um, so that's that and for my own practice um, i find it very limiting if i think about it as a step-by-step process because then two years down the line, I mean, I I'm stuck with that process I, and I don't want to be, I don't want to always have to do the same thing. I, I see, I also see it as a toolbox where I can build on that and grow in different directions while the red stays still true. And I don't need to use everything at all times. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm curious to know, um, how do you see your own evolution in the past few years as an artist? What are some things, or what are some ideas that you have outgrown, or ideas that you have imbibed later that you didn't have at the start?
0: I don't think I've outgrown the ideas, but I, I, my things—I think my also my urban sketches, when I have the time, get more and more complex. And they get more and more complex because I found ways how I can build on initial things that are not that complex, Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't need those things. So that's what I mean. Like I can use those as tools on top and make um, how to make the line work more complex, even though I start with the same from the same start, if you will, Um, how to how to perhaps use color. Um, more simply if the line work is very complex and perhaps use color more sort of in a more paperly way if the if if the color if the line work is minimal and i I'd, I'd like to be able to to sort of play a gamut if you will and sort of switch and and um, change depending on what I see fit and what I think um, I'd like to achieve so that's how I think about my my practice mm-hmm. I don't want to have like one process that fits it all because I um, even though they might see, a lot of them seem similar and they are similar, but um, I'd like to leave that opportunity for growth in various directions. And and um, I think it's easiest if you don't have completely different processes but tools that you can push and pull with.
1: I feel like uh, the the the, the expression itself for me has evolved in ways over time, but my central questions and the things that i'm so in my case i would simply say that in 4 years i have cut down on the number of lines i draw while showing yeah. more things than i was ever able to draw so i think of it as a process in which i have optimized the minimum number of lines to say more and more things
0: yeah yeah so i mean i think it's good to sort of realize those those um, those goals for yourself, really? even if they are not um, open goals, maybe they just you just realize by looking back, this is sort of where I'm headed. Then you can evaluate: is this actually what I want, or is, was this a sort of a fluke, or is this uh, is this what I like better? It's 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 quite interesting. Um. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's more like I like to. Um. I'm not a minimalist when it comes to lines when I use lines but um mm-hmm. I don't I don't mind any extra lines. I think it's for me for me it's um when it comes to people drawing being able to draw more and more sophisticated people from different vantage points and different interactions and different that just, you know making the storytelling aspect playing that up and up more and more. I think that's that's something that I always like and There's this other recent goal because I one thing that I as I as I mentioned in the beginning, that initially my practice of illustration and urban sketching was quite different. Um you go out and sketch something, but then how does that help you with cooking something up for a client? And and so there's there's this gap in between that that um that closes as you build up your vocabulary and your your process um outside. Um but there's still there's still a gap between those two always, um, and especially a lot of the illustration work comes requires full color to some extent, and I'm I really I I really do full color outside when I paint um, when I do sketches because I don't want to mess around so long, and so this is something that I that I made some conscious efforts to i have i've started one or two books where i just paint in that i haven't even shared anywhere just to sort of make them a dedicated outdoor painting books to increase my vocabulary of um, light effects and colors and things like that which is sort of separate from the other things that i usually do on on location because there's no storytelling there's nothing it's just trying to figure out what is that color color notes and you know little scenes in color the effect of light and what's the warm and cool and things like that
1: yeah yeah i feel like that's so important to do because sometimes we become slaves of our own work we feel that a certain image or a certain style has locked us down and we need to fulfill uh, our obligation towards it so the the sketchbook has to have this freedom and not these chains for us
0: yeah, I mean, I also, also, I also always think about sketches as two things. I feel sometimes they get confused, and I it can be liberating to separate those two. I think um, in the urban sketching and online world, I like to think of sketches as finished drawings that communicate something. Otherwise, I feel this is when it's useful for other people to look at. You know, you show your world one drawing at a time, perhaps, um, but then. You know, you want to show something about that world and you want to communicate that. But then there's other sketches that are really only exercises for yourself for improvement. They don't have necessarily communicative value. They they are something that you play with and you try something. They are not for an audience. And so this is sort of, I think there are two different kind of things.
1: Let's take a short break here. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my sponsors, the Sneaky Art Insiders and the people who buy me coffee to support this show every month. This show is 100% independent. That's the way that I like it. And these are the people who help to keep it this way. If you like this episode or if you've enjoyed an episode in the past, hit the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. It's a great and easy way to indicate your support and also to get in touch with me directly. Most recently, I've been given coffee by Carla, Sabrina, Radhika, Peer, Nance, Kate and Pierre. While Nance said that she listens to the episode while gardening, Kate enjoys them while at the gym. I'd like to thank all of you for your generous support and for your kind words. I hope you're listening to this episode and enjoying it as well. If you like this show and the work that I've been doing for just over a year now, the second way to support me is to commit to a monthly or annual subscription which equates to just about one cup of coffee per episode. In exchange, you enter raffles and giveaways for my art and my books, you become part of exclusive hangouts and private conversations, and also receive the weekly Sneaky Art Insiders newsletter. Which includes bonus commentaries and postscript conversations like the one that I'm sharing with you right now. A postscript conversation is when I end up having a second conversation with my guest right after we finish recording for the episode. It's like a long goodbye. I decided it would be a good idea to record some of these second conversations and to share them with insiders if they're particularly insightful or useful. In the postscript segment that I'm sharing with you now, Tom and I talk about our respective experiences with self-publishing and selling our books, taking forward the conversation that we shared in episode 28. We talk about how we took the decision to go with self-publishing. We also speak about the creator economy and the 1000 true fans model and the way that it might apply to my work and to his work. In the clip you're about to listen to, I asked him about the overall experience of putting together and selling his book, and how he sees himself conducting future projects.
2: The physical product itself is where I put all the extra little bells mm-hmm. and whistles, and uh, and to hear someone say, "I, you know, I I loved the the textured cover. I love that it felt like a sketchbook. I was flipping through. I'm like, cool, awesome. So this format, this format worked. I, you know, the same way that we talked about an animation earlier of of using technology or art to convince people of of something that you're doing the fact that some people were convinced that they were flipping through a sketchbook was mission accomplished that was the primary goal of the physical Mm -hmm. product and uh that's a format that i would like to continue yeah and i absolutely maybe maybe it'll be totally destroyed because there'll be more pressure now (laughs) i want to i want to continue this and and pursue it more aggressively as um as my art you know, forget about galleries and big paintings and stuff like that. I want to I make, make and share sketchbooks.
1: To access this full conversation, become an insider. Just for this week, I'm offering a special discount on the annual membership. Hit the link in the show notes to grab it. This weekend, I'm going to send insiders my postscript segment with Kosha Kuna, the guest in the previous episode. Become an insider and get it right in your inbox. Coming back to today's conversation, I'm speaking with Oliver now about a comic that he drew, which is an ongoing project about an unexpected difficult circumstance in his life. We talk about how drawing can help us deal with adverse life situations and things get a little philosophical i think you like it um now thinking of sketches or illustrations as something that says something like beyond just the the technical aspects or the technique yeah. or the finesse or any of those words the thing that says something how do those things uh, how do how do they thrive in today's world when we have so much media we have so many forms of media available to us what is the value then of doing something by hand and saying something in an illustration that you've worked on with ink or watercolors?
0: Well, I mean, I think you can, you can make any argument. You can also say there's no value. This is completely fine with me. I think, you know, I think we do this because we, we find value in it. Um, I think if you are draw the way I look at it, if you are drawn to drawing, if you enjoy that, after some technical competency and what that point is, is up to you. um, You have, the question will emerge, like, why bother? Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And and so you have to ask yourself, what do I want to say with it? Or what do I do it for? What what satisfies me to do with that skill? And for me, it's um, the thing that is, um, has so far been unquestionably self- um sustainable or, or self-motivating is to try to tell little stories if you will like little interactions of people little stories little pieces of real life that pan out um so if i draw a, if i draw a fancy building for example i in the middle i wonder like why why do i do this and i can i can justify it to myself and say okay i want to get better at this and that's fine but it doesn't have as much Inherent value for myself, whereas for some reason, um, stories of people or interactions, how life plan, pans out in the world, I find uh, self um, self sufficient. I don't know why this is, um, but I just discovered that it is for me. And so I always ask people, uh, I, I ask students to figure out what it is after a certain point, like that they are really that they're driven by to it can be flowers, it can be anything. Um, some some don't need further explanation. And for some for me, it's also the the, the communication aspect. Then, so then there is something that I can re- relate to other people with that. I can perhaps even make fun of when I look at it and perhaps be a little, you know, a little ironic. Uh, so maybe it's the introvert's revenge. Who knows? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So well put. Uh, the initi- <laughs> what you said at the start also was so intriguing to me. This question that comes and it should come to everybody. Uh, why bother? Why do this? And why why do it in this way? Or why do it at all? It, it's such an important question because then it pushes us to dig a little deeper into ourselves. If it's If something is giving us joy or if something is fulfilling a curiosity that makes it a sustainable habit so often people uh, i've been asked by people how do you uh, draw so much like how do you not get bored of doing it or tired of doing it and the answer is always just that i draw the things that make me curious how can i get bored of my own curiosity that's literally yeah. the thing that is interesting to me
0: yeah i i i agree and you can i feel like you can it can be a source of endless um The things that I draw can be for me, to me, can be a source of endless fun and uh, entertainment just by itself. And then there's other things that I draw, you know, where I feel like I want to get better at this or I want to nail this and do it so that I know what the deal is here.
1: Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, things like that, I think this is a good time for me to ask you about this comic that you're working on.
0: Okay, yes, completely new topic, um, added dimension, so to speak. Um, so that comic, I mean, as I, I mean, I can, yeah, where to start? So maybe I'll start at the beginning. Um, it, it happened that when I really started to push my freelance career, um, after having sort of dabbled into it and doing it as a side gig when I was still a scientist at UCSF, um, our son was born so I, I took some time off to, to look after him and then I was ready to really push my luck so to speak and see whether this has any legs and what I can, can make this work for real and at around that time I was out of the blue diagnosed with um, colon cancer and this was you know I didn't fit the I didn't really fit the age um, profile or any other of the other of the risk factor so it was completely unexpected and it again sort of turned my life upside down for for a whole year it was um, to you know to go through chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and um, stoma and and so it was a huge transition in life and and I was I was already into urban sketching at the time and illustrating and so I thought well you know I'll I sort of wasn't in the driving seat anymore because there were now all these things that I needed to do and just show up and go through with it but I felt like drawing and taking notes of my experiences were something that I could do to remain to some extent in a driving seat at least of part of that experience and so that's what i that's what I did I just um made visual and, 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 written notes throughout. And, um, at some stage it occurred to me that this could be, this could be for me, a combination of the things that I, that I really like to do. I mean, I have the, you know, I have the scientific background. Um, I like to draw. And one thing that I've, if there's one thing that I've been missing from science is to sort of develop a longer a longer project that is more elaborate than a single illustration. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe this has some legs and maybe I can turn this into a sort of graphic novel sort of thing. And then I was sort of lucky initially with a, with a publishing house that listened to me, um, or at least um, gave me some feedback, namely that I should do it completely different, Um, Um, I was sort of wanting to write about my experience and um, they were sort of saying that has been done and um, it would be great to have sort of different viewpoints in there as well and uh, have a female perspective in there. And after I was, after after getting to terms with that, um, that, you know, not being pissed anymore that I'm, how can they ask me to do a female perspective if I'm male and this is my thing? um i sort of also worked into this the experience of my wife and how she experienced that that whole year and it also has as a third point of view the sort of whole the the point of view of an oncologist that narrates the whole history of cancer so to speak and sort of gives um Puts that in a sort of larger context about different treatments and things like that. Um, so I I worked out uh, a storyline and a few and maybe ten or fifteen pages or so. And um, you know this is um, this already amounted to a lot of work for me because I had never done that. And it's you know if you do something for the first time, you're not the most efficient, which sort of also makes it interesting, but um, not necessarily efficient um and the challenge was sort of how to how to communicate to anyone what the final might look like if you don't do it all um and i don't know i sort of i think i sort of read around and asked around a little bit and came to that conclusion of presenting sort of the the whole story in bullet points and those 10 15 pages of finished art um and came back to the publishing house that I thought we had a we had an agreement with and um, um, they didn't seem to be very interested anymore I, it sort of they um, it fell through the cracks and so since then i this just took me quite a while to to assemble to that stage um, and now for the last three or four or five months i ha- I haven't really touched it because I've been busy with other things and but I'm I think I need to spread cast my net a little wider and see whether it flies somewhere else. So, if anyone on your podcast um, is interested in taking a look, be very, very interested to talk to you. Um, so, this is sort of the that's the gist of it. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um,
1: I want to uh, just uh, press on the point of how drawing one's circumstances. <clears throat> helps us to deal with those circumstances could could you tell me a little bit about that or art of any kind how does it help us deal with things that are out of our control
0: well i mean i am um i'm reluctant to give sort of general advice on that but i can i think it helps. as i said it, i think it helped me by first of all at least for a limited period of time it takes your mind off things so it over and over it has helped me it has helped me in that way um earlier in life and and in that situation as well and secondly it helps with um it helps with cataloguing your experiences you know you have sort of a you make a record and by making a record you make it specific Um, depending on what you draw it might be more or less helpful or in for specific things but if you really take a close look at um i don't know at a stoma device or something then you know okay this is what it looks you sort of made not necessarily friends with it but you engaged in a in a meaningful way with it and you sort of got a. it's a way of getting to grips with it and thirdly and this is something that only happens afterwards i feel with all these all these, all these um, di- entries of the diary and all these drawings that you do—they um, can, while they might be helpful initially, when you look back on things, they might help you to construct the narrative. And so this sounds a little bit well, but I mean you're making things up. Um, but I think we always construct narratives of our lives. I mean, we also we always only make meaning of our lives looking back because in the moment we just do what we just do what we do. We might have goals, but really we just construct. We only just make meaning looking back on things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I read this book this year. Um, it's by a theoretical physicist. The name of the book is Order of Time, and it's by an Italian researcher who ta- who specializes in quantum gravity. And he talks about how the argument being that we don't really understand how time works. And the past is not something that exists. The past is something that we create every time we think about something. So every time we look back, you know, tying to your point about narrative, is that every time we think about our past experiences, we are a new person undergoing new ideas and experiences motivated by new pains and pleasures, recreating and re-entering what does not exist anymore so every time we look back at the past we are creating a new narrative of how things went and why they went a certain way
0: yes I, i can completely relate to that it might sound um it might sound a little out there for for a lot of people because well reality is what it is and you know one thing happens after the other and and while this is true um it doesn't it doesn't help you with make with structuring your life, or giving giving you predictive power, or, or making me, you know making sense of what has happened to you um, throughout life, this is this is something that we. Um, sorry to say, I think this is something that we largely construct.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, and there is there is a bit of a loss there. The idea that it's not something that is. <laughs> You know, grounded in reality but there is also a liberation there that we can we don't have to be chained to a past that we feel obliged to be around it is something that is within our control and it is in control of everybody around us to reinterpret or to understand their past in a new light there is every new opportunity to do that I think there's also liberation there
0: yeah yeah but it's it's like um just like um when you ask me like how did I how did I come to have the career that i have i mean now in hindsight i construct that narrative um, while while I was in the me- in the middle of it i there was no way that this was a narrative you know this was just um, things happening opportunities arising doors opening doors closing and in a way you sort of, in the end you or looking back you make it into a sequence of events that we can um, communicate with because otherwise it's just bits and pieces that float about
1: so so true yeah um we we try to make a story so that we can make sense of that story and i'm reminded of this uh, phrase that for, i'm reminded of two things actually so as a control engineer i learned about how we have this tendency to find patterns and things even when patterns don't exist And I'm thinking now of a conversation I had with Felix Scheinberger just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me about this concept called pareidolia or pareidolia, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is that our tendency to see patterns, visual patterns in things that don't have patterns. And he was talking about at that time, he was talking about looking at a mountain, for example, and seeing a face on it. It's just us imposing a pattern that we recognize or a shape we recognize on something that obviously there is no face on it. And it led me to think about uh, even other things in science, for example, uh, uh, constellations. So uh, those stars don't actually connect with each other. They are not even close to each other. They could be millions of light years away from each other and have nothing to do with each other. But simply from our vantage point or from where we look at it and we look up and we need to see a pattern we construct a pattern between those stars. We ascribe human shapes to those stars, and then we use that yeah. shape on that line to, to our purposes. We use it for navigation, or we use it for religion, and all kinds of things to help us today in our world.
0: Yeah, yeah. It might be a little bit lofty to say, but I mean, we are not. We are not made to. To recognize truth or or things like that, we are, we are, you know, we are wired to make sense of our environment. This is what we are. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. (laughs) (laughs) And if we, if we see, I mean, like just in, like in art, like, I mean, you, that's the the beauty, if you, if you are one of those people who like, who prefer to draw buildings, then you always have the option to just make tiny dots around the buildings and they will be read as people Um, just because we are sort of jumped to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there is this interaction between the artist and the viewer of the art all the time that you will recognize these shapes as certain things. And so many artists play with it. Like if you look at abstract art or you look at something by Picasso or somebody, they are relying on our ability to make sense of these things to even things that are quote unquote out of proportion that don't look uh the way a traditional person would look but it is our tendency to impose yeah. order on this image that helps us to see things in it and then they play with it to make it seem like more and more things based on how much we invest in that image
0: yeah i think i mean as you say like this this proportion thing this um, while it is very easy to project things like um, the general shape of people onto random smudges on the paper, um, once we get into into the area of recognizable people, like specific people, um, that doesn't that doesn't work as well anymore. And now we pick up every little deviation, and that's why. That's why we can be very hard on ourselves that that person doesn't look exactly to that person while it is so easy to just make random people somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. There is this artist I follow um, on the internet, on Instagram, and she does this form of abstract art and but in portraiture. So she's making digital portraits of artists and I'll share the link uh, with you as well as with uh, people who are listening to us. She makes digital art of famous people, so famous portraits, uh, portraits of famous people, but they're quite abstract. You couldn't immediately recognize who they are. But what's really interesting to me about her work is that she includes one distinct feature of that person, which if you look at it, it instantly clicks in your mind who this person is. And that sends me down this uh, thinking Mm -hmm. uh, path of how we recognize people. Often we, th- we would think that we recognize Superman because he's Superman, and all of these one, two, three, four, five, six things have to match up before we recognize Superman. But a person can have a square face and just that curl of hair on their forehead, and instantly our mind will jump to Superman. And her art kind of plays with this idea how few things can I make just right? So that you know exactly who I'm talking about, even though the picture does not otherwise resemble them
0: exactly, right, yeah, yeah, there's definitely that um, that some things i mean we are you know we are we are dying in our recognition patterns to just see something that makes sense, so that's why that's why it's so hard to draw because um, we just end up gravitating towards, towards uh, symbols you know we that they work really well and we think we think we have seen something we recognize what it is and we put we digest it in our brain and when we put our pen down we what comes out naturally is the symbol for that the abbreviated simplified um, version of whatever it is that we've been looking at and then we might be not so happy with, with the result because it isn't as sophisticated as, as reality.
1: I'm thinking about the subject of symbols and how symbols being instantly recognizable to us, they help us to grasp an image and how that ties into even your work as a science illustrator. The way you use certain recognizable animals, for example, you, you might use certain worms, you use dinosaurs, you use frogs and how they are symbols standing in for something or the other in order to help us understand roles between things and the way they do things. So uh, h- how have you thought about symbols in illustration work yourself?
0: So how I use symbols and how, how symbols um, play out in, in illustration work. And I think it's, it's interesting. It's a slippery slope because on the one hand, if you go, if you go too far towards symbols... Then it becomes very obvious, and it becomes very um, boring. And um, you hit someone with the ham with the hammer over the head. Um, on the other hand, if you stay away from any and this can also be this can also be things like um, prejudices or, or things that are um, attributed characteristics. You know, if you have a if you want some something to read as a witch. Then there are certain things that make it easier, and other things that will make it harder. If you if you make a young woman that looks beautiful and and um, perhaps I don't know steampunky, then she might not look like a medieval witch. If you go to long long hair and perhaps um, old and full of um, folds and maybe with a with a with a with a cat of some sort and some rags then per- and with a broom, then that perhaps might immediately read as a witch, but it might be the stereotype of a witch. So you play with the stereotypes and you try to... I, I try to play with the stereotypes and make it not totally obvious, but you still need to be... I feel like I still need to be close enough that it reads as was I intended to read. So this is sort of the... This is the, the field of tension, I guess. Because otherwise it doesn't communicate what you want it to communicate if everyone has to figure out everything by themselves. They they won't it won't it won't read as what you want it to read. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. <laughs> you want to make it easy for them to enter the image, but you do want it to be their experience to sort of appreciate and understand its yes, nuances. And,
0: and ideally, yeah, or you can or you or you give them what you raise the expectations and then don't give them quite what they expect. This sort of works well because then they think, oh, I've figured it out. But then, hey, what's, well, why isn't this, well, what's going on here? And this is then the sort of mm-hmm. the point that they get stuck on and, and focus on.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the the general uh the the thing about i think how do i frame it like it's something that all artists want right like one way to get people to give you their time you want that attention and we want that little bit of their time to spend on our work what kind of plans do you have now going forward what are some things you're trying to do in the near future with respect to teaching or with respect to science or even just as an as an artist and sketcher
0: um okay so well for the now that life is getting a little bit more back to normal um i'd like to get back to some of the things that i've been really missing as well and one of those things is is teaching definitely i used to travel around quite a bit to to teach workshops for weekends or weeks um urban sketching related and this um with the pandemic this all came to a halt um, I'd love to pick this up again. I've been doing some teaching now in Vienna, um, and a little bit on zoom last year, but I, it's, I really prefer to, to do it in person and, um, go to, go to people and, and, and teach, um, interested, interested groups. So I hope that this is coming back. um, mm-hmm. um, um, another thing is, well, the. The illustration work um, is something that I that I always like to do as well, and that I that I'd like to um, expand on to more. I mean, the, the science science um, illustration work has been really. I mean, for me, it's been the <clears throat> the entry gate and the thing that no one else can serve as well. There's lots of people who can draw and lots of other um, um, outlets, but this has been my. Where I can make the most difference, I feel. So I've I've been starting there, but I'm I'm definitely also interested in venturing out. One thing that we that we did with the group here in Vienna was to to um, publish a book about um, Vienna based on urban sketches last year. It's called Kretzel gekritzel, yeah, by ten ten different urban sketchers, and um, everyone visited their favorite places, and so it's it's a few hundred. Pages of of travel guide, so to speak. That was a nice nice pandemic um, project that's still that's available. Um, so those sort of things, um, I'd really like to do more of um, using using drawing and urban sketching um, as a communication tool for for a product, so to speak, as well. And um, I'd love to do more reportage work, for example. I've been having. This is something that I really like to do, but I, I have not found out um, how to how to get people on the hook for that. <laughs> to be honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, there's always a a certain a certain area of things that you want to do, and a certain area of things that people are interested in, and the goal is to make to increase that overlap.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, very well put. Yeah, exactly true. <laughs> In the Venn diagram, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the nerdy scientists out there. <laughs> but yeah, so I think I think that's the sort of um, urban sketching, using that to communicate. Um, maybe reportage or some sort of travel guide things that would be fantastic um, illustration work. I like the I like the balance of those those two. Cause one is sort of indoors and longer, longer style. And the other one is outdoors and a little quicker and then teaching really to, I like to be, uh, even, you know, I said that I'm an introvert, but I like those stints of, 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 um, dedicated interaction with people. It, it, it helps me to distill, distill my thinking. So it, it helps me as much as it helps other people, um, that, um, so you always, you know usually people think it's all about the students and it is all about the students but the students you have to really in order to teach it you really have to reflect on your process and and um, that helps you a lot as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, this this has been a really fascinating conversation for me, Oliver. Thank you so much for sharing your world, for sharing your ideas, and telling me about the things that are in, so interesting to you.
0: Well, thank you, really, Nishan. I didn't know I had so much to say, but um, I think you're doing this very well, and um, I'm I'm happy to be among the people that you that you that you got on your show. It's um it's all my pleasure. Really. Thank you. Very much.